0: Okay, well, this morning we have about 30 minutes uh, in which we're going to tackle the subject of prayer and mission. This is, I've decided to do this very simply. We're going to do prayer at the beginning for a little bit, and then we're going to do mission in the second half. Isn't that great? So, simple stuff. Prayer at the beginning, mission at the end. Um, this morning, I want to start by uh, recognizing that uh, God is doing some things amongst us, isn't he? We're, I've just been very aware, since, particularly since coming back off sabbatical, of the ways that uh, we're becoming increasingly aware of how God's at work amongst us, His presence amongst us, how He's moving. And in particular, I um, want to pay attention to the fact that we've been uh, receiving prophetic words about what God is kind of indicating to us of how He's intending to move. Um, some of you will have been here uh, recently when uh, Al King stood up and shared a, a word for us about uh, there being a harvest, there being a, a, a bringing of many people coming to Christ, coming into the church community. And uh, he used this image of almost like fish jumping out of the water and into the boat. Previous to that, Lance Tower stood up and reminded us of a prophetic word that was given to Rock and Bev Bottomley many years ago um, about seeing a revival um, in this region, seeing many people. Coming to Christ, particularly those who are in their youth. And I'm sensing God's presence in new ways, ways that I've not known in eight years of being here. In 2013, I was in this room um, in the week. I was praying, walking around, and just sensed the Lord begin to meet with me. And I, f- I felt his presence. I sensed a weightiness. And he, I heard him just say these words I heard him say to me, uh, I'm going to visit this place. And my presence will be so strong, you'll not be able to stand. And for the last year, I've been experiencing something um, of that um, awareness of his presence. I believe God is speaking to us about him coming powerfully in our midst. I believe he's working, uh, and the outworking of that will be a revival where we see many people come to Christ, particularly particularly young people. You know, I've carried a hope for revival in my heart for 20 years. So I don't say this lightly. This is the first time I felt it. And I, there's, a, there's a sense of expectation that I've not known before. And it, as I thought about saying this this morning, I thought, oh man, you know, don't wanna just, I, I don't want to communicate something of hype. I don't want to speak about, um, Lord, is it okay for me to say this? But I just realized that there's something about acknowledging what God's doing and then not being afraid to pursue it together. I've, uh, I've asked uh, Lance Towers if he would just come up. Um, one of the ways that we can respond when we hear words like that is to um, recognize that it's an invitation from God. And Lance and I have been talking recently, some of you will know Lance, but if you've never met Lance before, um, he's a man who is, uh, walks with the Lord, he prays, he helped to establish the, uh, the House of Prayer here in Oklahoma City. And I wanted to just speak for a couple of minutes about a way in which we can respond when we hear prophetic words like that.
1: I want to tell a story. A pastor named Armin Geishwin had an older man named Ambrose Whaley who had come to his office. Ambrose Whaley was much older than Armin Geishwin was. And Ambrose Whaley had not so much a public ministry, but more of just a private prayer closet ministry. Yet, in his prayer closet, the Lord would reveal many things to him. He would spend time reading. And so he went to the younger Armand Geishwin and would just have a book. He would come to the pastor's office and say, here, read this book. And then Ambrose would leave. After a while, Armand Geishwin started to see everything that this man gives me is gold. I don't know where he finds all these books that I'm not aware of. But I appreciate the relationship, though it's brief and not... Uh, we don't talk a lot, but I appreciate the relationship I have with this older saint. And so Armand Geishwin asked him one day when he came to drop off a book at his office, can we pray together sometime? I see you give me books on prayer, you give me biographies. What you're giving me is helpful. Can we spend some time together and pray? So Armand Geishwin went to Ambrose Whaley's hay loft. He would pray out in his barn, and he had a Bible on a bale of hay. So Armin Geishman was just watching, like, I'm the student, he's the teacher, I've never prayed in a hayloft before, I don't know what's going on, so he just did what Ambrose Whaley did. Ambrose kneeled by a bale of hay, so he kneeled by a bale of hay. Armin was going to wait and let him pray first, but after a period of silence, he felt a little uncomfortable and wanted to fill it, so he started to pray out loud. He prayed for a while and stopped, then there was another period of silence, and Ambrose Whaley started to pray out loud. When he got done praying, Armin didn't want to belittle himself or be negative, but he could see a night and day difference between the prayer that he had just prayed and the prayer that this older gentleman had just prayed. And so he asked him, he said, what is your secret? We both opened our mouths and said words to God, yet your prayer and my prayer were worlds apart. And Ambrose Whaley said, plead the promises. Plead the promises. So there are many different reactions that we can have to a prophetic word. We can clap. That's a good thing to do. We can say praise the Lord. We should praise him when he speaks to us. We can cheer. We could dance. We could be, in a remarkable or demonstrative way, celebratory. And yet, I believe all of that is incomplete, in Matthew 9, 37, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore go. No, that's not what he says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, ask, K." And I believe that any word, as Mike is sharing, he senses revival, a visitation, is close to us. So we can say good, we can agree in our hearts, but if it doesn't turn towards a supplicant response, a petition, I believe that our response is incomplete. God's promises are invitations to intercession and to the place of prayer, to the place of asking. And so I want to just lean in for a minute to what he's already spoken um, and just pray. Pray that this promise uh, would be fulfilled, and in doing that, I want to say this is not a, this is not a one and done. My, my prayer now is not necessarily going to be the revival that comes next Sunday. This is like the rays of the sun. This is like the drops of rain that fall from the sky. It's only because there are many that we feel their effects. Now, are there times of breakthrough prayer? Yes, I believe there are. But there are also a time that we just fill the bowls in heaven with our prayers. So it's multitudes and multitudes of times of intercession. It's not a one-time breakthrough, but it's over and over, continuing to ask until we see the manifestation of what God has promised us. So, God, we believe that there is a visitation incumbent on this people and on this region we believe that there's a movement that you want to see released, that you want to revive your people and awaken them unto your name being made great among the nations. God, we believe and we plead the promise of Malachi 111, that your name would be made great among the nations, and the incense and pure offerings would rise from every place. God, we ask that you would anoint your people and pour your spirit upon us and thrust us into the nations of the earth. God, we ask also for this nation and for unreached people groups in this nation that they would be touched by the gospel. So would you visit us? And God, we ask, knowing that you promised that your house would be called a house of prayer. God, make us a people who are persistent, who are audacious, who are shameless, who are persevering in the place of prayer build the house of prayer god we believe in breakthrough intercession the times where we pray once and the answer comes but we also believe in stubbornness and resolve and diligence and faithfulness god would you give us the fruit of the holy spirit help us to be faithful to continue to ask we believe the harvest is plentiful and we will ask god send forth laborers into the harvest field
0: if you agree with Lance and me just say amen. amen amen thank you Lance I don't know how that felt for you I'm not set where you are I don't know where you've come from necessarily or what your history has been with God um, but I want to invite you to step into this place together as a community you know, even there's things that we can't control about what God does. We, we don't get to control the timing. We don't get to control the who and the how. But what we do know is that God invites us into this place with him. And as he does so, and as we respond to him, there is, a, there is a privilege that we get to burn with a passion for the things that are in his heart. And I just want to say this morning, I'm going to talk about very simple, practical things of what it means to live out of an evangelistic lifestyle. But... Something which is in somewhat of a contrast to um, talk of revival. But here's the thing. You know, we've been around for a while as a church. I've been here eight years. Um, and I just don't think we've really grasped hold of what it means to really love the lost as a church community. I think we have people who carry it, and all of us to some degree do, But I think it's time for us as a church community to know what it is to really love and pursue the lost. And I want to invite you on that journey. I'm going to keep inviting you and those of you that want to come. um, I think we're in for a great, um, exciting ride with God. So it's a little where we're going and what I wanted to share with you this morning. The passage that we're going to look at is in Matthew 9. And so if you want to open it up, it's Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And it's the calling of Matthew this is a, an encounter that uh, Jesus has with a man who's a tax collector, and there's a, a really interesting response that happens here in that Matthew and a number of his, if you like, associates or friends or people that he um, spent time with had with Jesus, and then there's the response of the religious community, and I think it's important that we pay attention to the, the, uh, the two things that are happening in this passage. The, uh, let's read it together. It's up on the screen. is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would help me to communicate, and I pray that you would open our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to speak to us. I pray that you would... Uh, awaken our hearts to the things that you're speaking and that you would give us grace to respond and follow you in all that you're doing in this time. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So the context of this passage is very much uh, one that we may be able to identify with. There is a community of people here who are um, very aware of their surroundings and the pressures of the world that they live in. The, the people of Israel had been in a, a, a mindset really of learning, of living in a way where they were uh, orientated to protecting and preserving um, their identity as a Jewish people in a context of a Roman occupation and a time when they had seen um, a lot of dismantling of um, their uh, nation and their faith and their prominence in, the, in that part of the world. They were uh, understandably in many ways, seeking to communicate what was important to them, to the Jewish people, so that they understood their identity, that they were able to raise their children and respond to um, the ways that God had laid out for them to live. And uh, you can imagine that being in a context of Roman occupation, there is a, a, there is a real challenge of wanting to live, uh, wanting to protect and preserve what they had. They wanted to live with integrity and right standing before God. After all, that there was a track record of the people of Israel not knowing, not doing a great job of of living out what it is to be uh, an Israelite in in the midst of other nations. They had made many mistakes. They had uh, got into situations with other nations. They'd been influenced by their other worship practices. They'd intermarried and they'd had diluted their faith and lost their way. So you can see why, in this post-exilic generation, under the subjugation of the Roman Empire, why a religious community might make the choice to batten down the hatches, hold tight to the things they could control, and see any alternative as a threat to their way of life. And I don't know as you think about that um, for yourselves today, when you think about the world that we live in, there's a real pressure, isn't there, from the world around us. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, there's a force about how the world lives that potentially could result in us retreating, seeking to control our environment and keep our distance from those who don't follow Jesus. Any of you relate to that? Any of you think about that, particularly those of you who have children, the challenge is very real when you think about what it is like to raise your kids in today's world. But you know, what can sometimes get into that place, into that thinking, is a fear. And it's a fear that, is, that seeks to control and uh, it's really an awareness that we, we can't predict or determine how life will go. So when we think of our faith, and particularly our children, and the next generation, the temptation key can be to withdraw, to pull back, to kind of build up the walls that are designed for safety, but in reality can end up being like a bomb shelter, readied for doomsday. When in fact the very thing that we're called to be, the very thing that we exist for is to be a light to the nations, a city set on a hill, an assault that is to the community. C.T. Studd, who was a missionary to India, said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Trying to control fear is never a stable foundation to build on. It leads to all sorts of warped thinking, and before you know it, a minor concern has morphed into a major distortion from what God really intends. In this passage, we see something of what Jesus, um, how he reveals that well-intentioned thinking thinking can get warped when fear and control are the dominant force. And I'm asking us as a church this morning to consider again, what does it look like to love the people outside of the church? The way to overcome fear and control in our lives happens when we release our grip and allow God's perfect love to replace it. So the question I'm posing for us is, um, does our thinking need an adjustment? Or, does, or as Matthew 9 puts it, um, who's coming to dinner? Who's inviting you to dinner? If we look at the beginning section of the, uh, the interaction with Matthew, you see something of uh, something that's quite revealing in that Matthew um, is there. He's in, the, he's in the public setting. He's at his booth. And then Jesus approaches him and he says, Come and follow me. And immediately Matthew follows us, and yet we're somehow left like, Now, what just happened? Is anybody else thinking that he just stops what he's doing and follows Jesus? Well, that, that response clearly reveals to us that, that Matthew had an awareness of Jesus, that he knew something of his ministry. He knew what was going on. And if you read in the chapters previous to this and what Jesus was doing, There were many examples of Jesus encountering people who were in broken places. He was talking to outcasts. He was healing people who were oppressed by demons. He was um, uh, healing the sick and doing many things um, which clearly communicated to Matthew that this guy who's a tax collector um, was someone that Jesus may have time for. And it's important for us to understand in the, in the day a tax collector was somebody who was, not seen with, um, uh, who was not seen well in the Jewish community. They really represented the Roman Empire and they're often found to be extorting money from people for their own gain as well as serving the means of the Roman Empire. So this tax collector, this person, um, was not somebody who was very aware of how he was seen by the Jewish people. And you know, I think it's really interesting because Jesus' life was, was unique compared to ours. He, he, in terms of his three years of ministry, he was moving around constantly. But I think this is his version of friendship evangelism. Because what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's communicating to Matthew through the way he's interacting with people around him that's visible to Matthew. I'm approachable. You're acceptable to me. i I'll, I'll, I'll experience hospitality with you. I'll eat with you. I'll be amongst you. You know, when I say the term friendship evangelism, some of you, we may hold out, I don't know what your grid is for that phrase. And it's not a very kind of modern phrase, I don't think. It's not a very hip phrase, but it's, it's one that I think works as far as what it says. It says what it is. And I want to define that for a moment for us, just so that we're on the same page. What I'm talking about here is that margin that we create in our lives where we choose to make a decision to be friends with somebody who doesn't know Christ. And it's about being willing to uh, include them and involve them in your life and the way that you live. Some of you, as you sat here this morning, you may be very aware of people who are like that in your life. You, some of you sat here this morning, maybe thinking, "I don't know who that is," or, "Like, do I have a friend? Can I think of somebody that I know and spend time with who doesn't know Christ?" And if I may, I'd like to be candid for a moment with us. We're not always very good at this as a church. I, uh, I think there are tendencies that we sometimes experience. We feel all sorts of pressure when we're around people who are not Christians, to be impressive. and uh, Perhaps you feel um, that in one conversation it's your job to share your testimony, lead them in a prayer to receive Christ, solve all their problems, and have them in church by next Sunday. don't know if anybody relates to that experience. But maybe that's where there was a sense of how you were raised, that when you're with people you just got to communicate something about your faith all the time and have it out there. Sometimes we feel a pressure, don't we, to, you know, if you're in the workplace or you're in a conversation with a group of people and spiritual topics pop up in conversation and there's a, there's a sense of feeling compelled of, well, I better win the argument so Jesus is happy with me and I prove this person that I'm right, I'm more knowledgeable, I'm more insightful, I'm more spiritual than they are. don't know if any of this is making sense, but nod your head if you relate to any of the things I'm saying. But... One of the challenges with that is that we, uh, we too often don't realize how we're being received. Sadly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm often in a position where I'm hearing views from people who are outside of the church. And uh, I think the perception, sometimes at least, is that Christians are viewed as a way, in a way of being judgmental or aloof or superior. Or perhaps even irrelevant in the way that we live and communicate. And when I look around the room, and I think about the the Christians that I know, I realize I don't think that's true for any of the people I know. I don't think that they think that about themselves. I don't think that that's how they intend to live. And yet somehow the perception for people outside of the church is that Christians are like that. And I wonder if the question that we perhaps need to consider is this, are they actually in contact or connection with people who love Jesus? Are they actually experiencing us and how we live and the actions that we, we, the way that we carry out our lives? Or is it just that their experiences are things that get posted on Facebook or the uh, one-off comments that we say in a group setting or where we suddenly feel the pressure to, to, to say the right thing to defend Jesus? I'd like to suggest to us that an approach to reaching people outside of the church is to actually build friendship. And it doesn't have to be with lots of people. It can be with one person. Be real. Be yourself. Build friendship like you build friendships anywhere else in your life. Go out for coffee. Ask them questions. Understand their point of view, why they think the way that they do. Even determining your heart, I am not going to share the gospel. I'm not going to offer to pray for them. I'm not going to need that, feel the need to say my testimony until they're at a point of asking me. I challenge you to do that. I've had the privilege of being around people um, and get into those conversations. And it happens. The Holy Spirit is so willing to work in a person's life that if you'll stick around long enough and you have enough conversations, you'll start be, they'll be the person that starts asking the question. They're the one that starts to notice something about what's going on inside of you or how you live. And I think that's a powerful place to, um, to live from. I asked Kaylee Markham. Um, Kaylee, are you around? just to share just briefly her experience of this to illustrate the point that we're making. And I hope you find it helpful as you hear just of what how she uh, experienced this in a positive way when she was at university a few years ago. So Kaylee, just tell us briefly what happened when you were UCO.
2: So my freshman year of college, um, I had a friend named Courtney, and she um, pursued a friendship with me, and she... Uh, as a very evangelistic person and shared the gospel with me probably like three times. And I was very much resistant. You know, I didn't want to hear that at that point in my life. And um, Courtney still pursued me. She didn't judge me for saying no. She didn't judge me for the lifestyle that I was choosing to live at that season of my life. Um, She loved me. She she just kept pursuing getting to know me uh, for me and not rejecting me because I rejected what she was trying to share with me.
0: So what happened?
2: So we continue to be friends. And I would say, uh, so I was 18 when I met her. And about two years later, the Lord, I started to just wonder more about who the Lord is, who's Jesus. And uh, so through those two years, Courtney and I were still hanging out, still being friends uh, she wasn't trying to pressure me anymore, but when I felt like the Lord was saying, Kaylee, I want to know you, uh, I, I called Courtney. She was the person I knew that loves Jesus. She's the person I knew that was doing Bible studies, pouring her heart out, spending time with God. And so I called her, and she came to my place, to my apartment. She met me where I was, and she just shared the gospel with me. And I received Jesus into my heart I that moment. Like, I had no idea that that moment would change my life so drastically. Like, just praying a prayer, just being curious about who Jesus is, that I am doing what I'm doing today because of that moment with her in my living room, because she pursued me as a friend, so.
0: Thanks, (laughs) Kaylee. See, friendship evangelism sows seeds that in time produce a harvest. Or put more simply, (laughs) when you love people with your time, you build credibility that allows you the privilege to speak. And that's something we can control. We can make choices to create margin. Do the things that are fun for you. Take time to get to know people. Legitimize, you know, in England we'd say go to the pub. You know, go to the pub with your friend and hang out. Um, I was just looking at you, Steve, walk up and I, I... I don't know if this is uh, prophetic or not, but play tennis with people. You know, I've heard you talk about that before. Um, Steve loves to play tennis. Play tennis. Do your version of tennis with people and build conversations. And then be available. Let people know. There's, there's a lot easier ways um, for, peop- for people to respond than perhaps we're aware of. I want to touch on one other thing that I think is important to say as well in this. We don't always get to control, we don't always get to see the outcome. We're not necessarily in the position of Courtney with Kaylee, but there's still incredible power in choosing to do what people like Courtney did. I remember when I was, uh, this was the Christmas of 1996, still at college, and it was before I went and did the Alpha course with a church in England, which is an introductory course to Christianity. And at that time in my life, I was not following God. Um, I didn't know what I believed, but I had a friend I went to elementary school with. Her name was, is Debbie, and uh, I was back for Christmas um, back at my home for a few weeks over the break, and a number of our friends would'd get together and see each other and hang out. And I remember uh, Debbie just uh, I knew she was a Christian, I knew that she went to church, and I remember her uh, just taking time to get to know me, taking time. we hadn't seen each other for a number of years um, and she would take time to get to know me. She asked me questions. She took an interest in my life. And um, we didn't, I didn't speak to her after the Christmas break. I went back to university. And then about two or three months later, I ended up on the Alpha course. And that's a, that was a turning point for me because that's really where I met God. I encountered Jesus in a powerful way, and I gave my life to him. I remember shortly after doing the Alpha course, God just kind of revealed to me uh, and it's difficult to describe this other than I just knew it was true, that she'd been praying for me and that she was, um, she'd been very intentional about what she'd done over the Christmas period. And, you know, I never spoke to Debbie again. I don't, and I don't think I've actually seen her, uh, and that was 22 years ago. And uh, what occurred to me is that there is an incredible reward that we get to take part in when we choose to engage with sowing these seeds into a person's life. When you pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus, when you uh, take the time to just love someone and then they move on and you never see them again. But 22 years later, I'm talking about Debbie right now. She's a part of my story and she's a part of the reason I'm here. And she probably has no idea of the impact that she's had and the way that I've seen God work through my life and that's affected other people. See, Debbie gets to share in the inheritance that Paul talks about in Colossians three twenty three and 24. And he says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, the Lord Christ. So in a sense, Paul is talking about our salvation when he talks about inheritance. But does he just mean that or is he talking about something else? here's a simple thought to consider. Salvation is a gift from God. Our faithfulness to Christ and what we've been given will be rewarded. Think about the parable of the talents. Think about what God has given us as an opportunity in our life to use the things that he's given us and how he speaks about a reward will come as we do that. So yes, we have an inheritance and part of that will be that we, uh, the people we helped find Jesus, whether we know it in our lifetime or not, will be a part of that. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, that gives perspective to me of what it means to sow seeds, what it means to invest in people's lives, to build friendships, because whether I get to see them come through and respond to Jesus in that moment, or whether I never see it, uh, there's a reward that's been established, and a part of that I get to play in what God's doing in his kingdom. The last part I, I want to focus on and just shift gear here is, is, is to look at the, um, the response of the people around Matthew as, as, as Jesus goes to dinner in his house. So you see that uh, it is interesting to note that uh, Jesus, Matthew is the one who does the inviting to Jesus to come to dinner. And the, uh, the, the response of that is not just that Jesus comes to his house, but there are many people that come to his house as a result of it. I think it's important. Why do you think that is? Like, this is Matthew and Jesus. They're having a conversation. Jesus says, follow me. Matthew says, all right, I'm off. Let's go. Come and have dinner at my house. And then a whole bunch of other unsavory people, according to the view of the day, then it turned up at Matthew's house. What is going on there? Did you just say something, Marie? Acceptance. That's a good answer. Yeah. I like that. There's an acceptance, isn't there? Suddenly, one man gets an invitation, and then a whole bunch of other people come too. When we practice hospitality, when we practice accepting people where they are, when we meet them on their terms, and we build that relationship, it communicates something that goes way beyond what you're doing in that moment. Can you imagine what it would be like in this church if we all took the invitation to build a friendship with one person. Just think about that for a minute. Think about what the potential impact might be of that. Think about the perception. Think about how people in Oklahoma City might view the church differently. Think about what it might mean for your life. You know, it's interesting, as you look at the end of the passage, there is this statement that Jesus makes to the Pharisees when he talks about, um, I've not come for the, the healthy, um, but I've come for the sick. And then he says, go and learn this. He tells them, he gives them this, this command. And he says, but go and learn this. Um, and he, sorry, I lost my way. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice." That was a phrase, "Go and learn this," that rabbis would use of the day. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, almost a, a provocation that they would give to their disciples of, "Why don't you go search the scriptures? Why don't you go and look and see what this means? And Jesus is not pulling any punches here, because he's, he's really rebuking the Pharisees by giving them this statement and saying, "Go and learn what this means." And he's, it's a cross-reference to Hosea 6, verse 6, uh, where that's a direct quote from there. And the context for that is that the people there of the day, they had missed the point and the heart of God, that they were just preoccupied with their sacrifices, but they weren't engaged at a heart level with God. You know when you make too many points and then you forget where you started? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um. I knew I started on that and shouldn't have gone. But I did. I followed it. Okay. But what are we saying here? Hmm. Jesus is saying to us about the importance of not missing the heart. Of, missing, of, of actually going after um, the thing that matters most. Not getting preoccupied with... Um, the peripheral things of keeping ourselves safe, of keeping ourselves um, free from doing things that we shouldn't do, but actually going after the heart of God and pursuing people. You know, the, the, in the Septuagint, the, uh, the rendering of the Hebrew word is chesed, for mercy, which, is, uh, which really is translated as steadfast love. And so they that he's rebuking the Pharisees because they do not see the significance of that. They do not understand that the important thing is steadfast love, the way of loving people and um, inviting and, and going past the, the externals of their lifestyle. They were preoccupied with maintaining laws and rituals around food and missed the point that God is first concerned with mercy. So what does this look like in our lives to show Mercy. Where has God positioned you to demonstrate mercy? Who's the person in your sight, um, within your sight, sight to show mercy to? Perhaps you've got to a point where you realize, I don't think I can see anybody. So maybe this morning is an opportunity for you to ask the Holy Spirit, who is it that you are showing me um, that is a person that, that I can bring mercy to? thinking about some different examples of people in our midst and, peop- and other ways that we can demonstrate this. And thinking about how does mercy play out? What does it look like to show mercy? You know, in the fostering and adopting world, um, it often provides you with the privilege to see up close the world of someone who is disconnected from mercy and the tangible love of God. When you look into the eyes of a homeless person and share a meal or coffee with them, and get talking about life, this gives you a a glimpse into mercy. Perhaps walking with a friend who suffered a loss, or grief, or heartache, and they invite you into their place of pain and difficulty. Pain has a way of cracking open our heart um, to mercy. I remember some friends of ours, when our eldest son was only two years old, they were pregnant, and uh, the wife had gone into labor, and there had been complications. And they had been transferred from the local hospital to the regional hospital. And um, things weren't going well. And uh, we got news of that. And we made a decision. Um, we didn't call. We just said, all right, let's go. We jumped in the car and drove to be with them. And uh, we, uh, we stepped into a situation at the hospital where it wasn't good. The baby really had a few days left. And, and, the, and the baby didn't survive. And we had... Uh, We didn't have profound words to say. We didn't even have this amazing faith to pray for breakthroughs and see the baby live at that point. It was just a case of turning up and being there because we thought, I think we need to do this. But we've had the, that, that was a turning point because in that friendship, they decided to let us into that place of pain and allow us to walk with them in that journey. And it was very painful for them, but actually we were able to Uh, experience what it is to bring mercy and to be with people and to see God at work in their lives through that friendship. And that was the turning point, simply making a decision to go and be with someone in their place of pain. It may look like, uh, it may look for you like you're alongside people in your school or your university or your workplace. And you're aware of people who are um, just looking around, searching for meaning and identity and uh, finding a purpose for their life. And there's a drivenness about the way that they live and they're searching for that significance. And it may be that the, your place is to be to build friendship alongside those folks and to demonstrate something of what it is to know Jesus and what it, how he brings meaning to life. And just one last example I wanted to highlight to you. There's a small group of ladies here in the church who since the women's retreat in June have taken... Uh, the challenge of weekly going to Walmart, uh, just out Northwest Expressway in Council. And every week, they just go and they chat with people and they offer to pray with them. And they've been there doing that faithfully, just loving people. And God's been doing amazing things. These ladies are stirred and have got vision for what God is doing there. And, uh, you know, my point in all of this is that mercy is demonstrated when we have connection with people. And I want to encourage us to be a people here who have that connection. That we take the time to be connected to people who need the demonstration of God's love. People who don't know the privileges of what we experience here together as a community. We're going to finish here and we're going to, as a, as, a, as a body this morning, we're going to take communion together. I'm going to turn it to Brock. But if it's okay, I'd like to just pray for us as we do that and transition over. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to be a people of mercy. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would uh, give us grace to be in places that are sometimes uncomfortable for the sake of others. I pray that you'd speak to us about what it is to, be, uh, to know the reward of partnering with you for the sake of those who don't know you. And I pray that you would bring a move here, Lord, of many coming in many knowing the love of God for the first time. And I pray that we'd have the privilege that you'd get us ready to be that people. In Jesus' name, amen.